On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jugs, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out um, the choice of wine first, and then the cheaper wine after. The guests have have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and that his disciples believed in him. Thank you, Brian, very much. I appreciate that. John 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, turn there, if you would. It's also on our app. You can follow along there. And as we get into this installment of through the book of John, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. i give you a moment to get to John 2, if you choose to do that, and and also make sure I welcome those who are joining us online in the South Valley and Rapid City and Nampa, Idaho, too, in Texas. And there, there's quite a few that it's good to have you all together on this Sunday morning. Uh, I just want to make a plug real quick. And this will be the only commercial I'll do today for it. Uh, but there is a program that you can find called The Chosen. I have recommended this show to innumerable people. And only one family has agreed to watch it so far. It's not even my own family. Uh, so th- th- this, this show uh, portrays Jesus in the Gospels uh, in, in such a profoundly accurate uh, and, uh, and, and, and deeply personal way. I cannot recommend it to you enough. And the passage we're going to look at today in John 2, verses 1 through 11, is during the first season of this show, The Chosen. So that's my plug. That's my commercial. Please watch it. Um, And you will be blessed if you do. This account, Jesus turning water to wine, it's one of those that probably most everybody, whether they're in church or not, has heard the idea of turning water to to wine. It looks like a pretty fun account. It seems a little bit odd because Jesus is at this party. They run out of wine and he gives them more wine. It seems this weird kind of like, why is this in the Bible? Uh, there has been some debate and much confusion about this, but we got to read this and every other section, especially in John, through this lens of what John says himself. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So there's something about this passage. There's something about this interaction. There's something about this choice of Jesus to both go to a wedding party and then to engage in in, in solving this issue 
that speaks to us and calls us, that, that gives us some reason to believe in him, and by that belief gain life. Now, now what I thought I would do is, is, is uh, just give you a little bit of, uh, give, give, give you a little context before I give some content. Some context of, of John. There are seven what we call miracles in the book of John. John doesn't call them miracles necessarily. John calls them signs, and there's a reason for that. He calls them miraculous signs. We would refer to them as miracles, but there's seven of them. Why seven? Now, please understand this. John, the disciple who wrote the book of John, who would later write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and write the book of Revelation. So as the longest living of the 12 disciples, he got to watch Jesus from beginning to end crucifixion to beginning ascension, and then watch the, the, this new church come to life. He's an old man when he wrote this stuff. And he has seen the totality of Jesus' ministry. He's seen the outgrowth of it. He's seen what, what, what the Holy Spirit did in the new church and through the new church. He's seen a whole thing. And he's writing this so that, what? We would believe. And by that belief, have life. And so John is also the one that told us that if he were to write down everything that Jesus did, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books that could be written. And so he boils all of that down. And all the things he's seen Jesus do, he picks seven to tell us about. Imagine. Why these seven? He could have, I can't even think of all the things he could have, but he chose these seven. And I was thinking, why these seven? Now, Jesus, he could have done anything. He chose to do these seven. Why these seven? He did more than this, but why, why, was the, why are these the ones that we should know about? I was thinking about that, and I thought, I, I think I, I got an idea. It's just an idea. I think Jesus is saying, you've heard what God has done in the past. I am here. I am God. And what you've heard, you will now see in greater measure. And so these seven signs, miraculous signs, I think are the expansion on what we see the miracles in the Old Testament, for instance. In John 2, he turns, Jesus turns, gets water from rock jars and changed in the wine. Why? Because Moses got water from a rock. And Jesus says, I'm not only going to get water from a rock, rock jars, I'm going to change that and transform that into something greater than water. In John 4, he heals a Roman official's son without even being present. That would remind people of Elijah and Elisha who both healed a child, but they had to be present. They had to be. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the prophets who have come before. I am life. I can do it with my word. In John 5, he was a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. That harkens people back to Elisha, who, 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 who had name and go to a body of water, the Jordan River, and be healed. Jesus said, no, 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 look, that was amazing. But what I do, I take people to the place of mercy. That's what Bethesda means, the house of mercy. I'll do greater than what has been done. 
Because remember, in John 6, feed them 5,000. It reminded people that God, while God provided manna for the, for the people in the desert, in, in the desert Jesus said, I'm not just going to provide you man. I'm going to give you bread. Why? Because I am the bread of life. I'm greater than Moses. My work is greater, transcends it. In John 6, he had walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee. That had to remind people. It had to draw back to God parting the waters so Moses and the people, he could lead the people through the waters. Jesus said, I don't need dry land to go through it. I'll walk on top of the waters. I'm greater than Moses. What you see in me is greater than what you've seen and heard of before. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. There's no precedent of this before. This had never happened before. Jesus did something that no other leader had ever done to give full explanation to who he is. See, other people had healed those who had once been. Jesus created something out of nothing. I'll give sight where sight has never been. I'm greater than what's been done before. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and calls him out of the grave. In the Old Testament, Elisha had died and they buried him and they threw him in a grave and his bones touched another dead man's bones and those bones came to life. It was amazing. But Jesus says, look, like I don't, don't give life. I am life. I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus, in these seven miracles, he, 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 he gives these to us. He shows us these. Why? These, these miracles are John recorded to show that Jesus has unlimited, unrestrained, and uninhibited power and authority over all things, from the invisible molecule to death itself. These things are recorded that we might believe in him and have life. There's something here in John 2, verses 1 through 11, that's intended to cause us to believe in the divinity, in the power, in the authority that is Christ. And in that belief, life. And so let's talk about this turning water into wine. I, I need to set the record straight. And I need to address this. Yes, Jesus made wine. It was alcoholic. There are some who are really religious Churchy, who don't believe that Jesus would have made an alcoholic drink. Let's understand. There are some who say, you know what? He didn't really make wine as we understand wine. It was more like grape juice. Well, it was grape juice. It was just fermented, so it was wine. But just because Jesus made a lot of wine does not mean he gives license to excessive drinking. Can we say that? So, 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 so the truth of it is this. In ancient times, they absolutely drank alcoholic wine. Let, let's, let's not try to make the Bible fit our own agenda. However, many times in Bible times, when they would drink wine, it would be diluted at a ratio of three to one. And so it took a lot more to get where some of you get regularly. It just, it was, it just took a lot more. 
So regarding wine, I want to share two passages with you from the Bible. Let's just make sure we understand what the Bible says about wine. Okay? Psalm 104, 14 and 15. This is what, who God is and what God does. God makes grass grow from the, for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. And this is the way people bring forth food. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And so God creates, allows us to make wine to make heavy hearts lighter. Do you understand that? The Bible says that. It's okay. However, the Bible also says in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on it because that makes you stupid. That's what the Bible says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the Bible says, look, God gives us this to lighten our hearts, but don't drink so much of it that you get drunk. And let me just put this out there too. Yes, tipsy is drunk. Buzzed is drunk, just so we understand. So that's what the Bible says about wine. Any questions about that? No good. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Know what the Bible says about it? No more discussion. All right, so Jesus is at a wedding. The fact that Jesus was invited to this wedding speaks to the kind and type of person that Jesus is. Think about it. Jesus is the type of person that gets invited to parties. They didn't invite any other rabbis or teachers or scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees, any other religious people, but they did invite Jesus. He's the type of person that gets invited to parties. And he's the type of person that gets invited to parties, not because they want anything from him. They just want him to be there. Why? Because he's a good time, apparently. Jesus was welcomed amongst those who were having a good time. Jesus isn't one of those religious people who ruins good times. And in becoming more like Jesus, I just wonder if his followers ought to be those types of people who add to good times rather than squash good times. Do you understand? There are some people who you'd never know that they were Christian because they just never have a good time. Now, when I was in high school, I grew up going to church. I started going to church six months before we were born, before I was born. Like my parents always had us there. And back in the day, Sunday morning, big church, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, big church, Wednesday night, meal at the church, Wednesday night, later choir, Wednesday night, later youth group. I and mean, we were there all the time. And so I was the type of Christian in high school that never got invited to parties because of my self-righteousness. Now, when I got into college, I was always invited to parties because I had no righteousness. I was the one that got invited to parties to lift the kegs and to move the kegs and to back up my boys because always, something always went down. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get this part of following Jesus right. I want to be one that's invited to the parties because I enhance the good times without being overtaken by the good times. Does that make sense? So we got to understand who Jesus is. See, Jesus is the type. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Did you get that? People who were nothing like Jesus 
liked Jesus. And so he's invited to this event. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. It meant a lot to them. This was a huge issue. Many of the wedding celebrations in the ancient times lasted seven days. It was a long time. You would get all these people come in, and, and the, 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 the bridal party, the, the, the bride and groom, their families were responsible to provide an abundance of food and wine. Why? Hospitality was a big deal, but it was also very symbolic. Wine was a symbol of joy, and to run out of wine was an indication that either the bride, the groom, or the family had no joy, was unhappy about this. Wine was a symbol of blessing and favor, and to run out of wine was an indication that maybe the, 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 this union was not going to be blessed. This would make the family a, a social pariah. This would make the family gain great shame and dishonor, which they could probably never come back from. And the fact that Mary's there, Jesus is there, his disciples have been invited, speaks a lot about who they are. It also speaks about the fact that probably this wedding, this family's engagement, this wedding, was somehow close to Mary. Otherwise, why would she feel the responsibility to go ask Jesus to help? And, and, and so they're in, this, they're in this real tender, very significant moment with people that they know and love and care about. Some have said that the reason why they ran out of the, pine, uh, of the wine at the party is because the disciples were there. Because <laughs> you know those church people. It's highly unlikely that that's why. I mean, at this point, Jesus probably only had five disciples with him. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, the ones we talked about. And, and so there weren't many disciples. There's probably five in Jesus. They're, they're, they're at this occasion. They run out of wine and... And what does Mary do? Yeah. She asks him to help. She asks him to intervene. See, she doesn't give Jesus direction. She just says, there's a need. See, the fact is, Mary didn't know what Jesus would do, but she knew he would do the right thing. If he's aware, he'll do the right thing. I don't know what it'll be, but it will be the right thing. Listen, there are times when, our, when, we, when we get in those moments, those situations, those scenarios, those problems, those troubles, where we don't even know what to pray. God, I don't even know how to address you. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what is going on right now, but here's what I'm gonna, Jesus, I need you, do what's best. Sometimes that's the best thing to pray. Jesus, I need you. Just do what's best. See, we don't always have to know what to ask Jesus for as long as we come to him with an expectation of faith and say, Jesus, just do what's best and then leave it alone. And, and, and we, when we can get to that point of saying, Jesus, I don't know what's best right now. I don't know what's best right now. I, do, I trust you do. 
I need you to just do what's best. When we can get to that point, then we can start living in the instruction of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. God, here, here's this thing. I don't, here it is. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. Just do what's best and walk away. So many times, those who follow Jesus want to give Jesus direction and instruction. God, this, 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 and and there's nothing wrong with specific prayers. That is fine. But there are times when we have to say, Jesus, here's the need. I don't know what's best, but I trust that you will do what's best and leave it with him and walk away. And that's exactly what we see Mary did. See, here's how it went down for Mary. She asked Jesus to help. She trusts Jesus will do what's best. And then she says, just do whatever he says. And she walks away. See, once you've given something over in Jesus' hands, you can't take it back. You've got to leave it with him. And she does. And so the lesson for us in those times of need, Jesus, I need you to do something. And I trust that what you do will be the best thing. And so I will do whatever you tell me to do. Do you see that? And I love Jesus' response. How does he respond to Mary? What's he say? We read his response like this. Woman! Why are you bugging me? That's how we read it. That wasn't really how he said it. He uses the words, woman, why do you involve me? He's not being gruff. He's not being insensitive. Some translators add the word dear in front of woman to soften it. Dear isn't there in the, in the, in the original Greek. They add it to soften it so we, so we read it in the way Jesus meant it. This, this the woman, this, this address to Mary is the exact same way he addressed Mary when he was on the cross. When he's on the cross and he's looking down, he sees Mary and John. This John, the disciple Jesus loved, this John who wrote this book, he uses the exact same word to her in John 19. He, he, he says in John 2, why do you involve me in this? And then later in the crucifixion, he'll say this, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom whom he loves standing up, he said to her, woman, here's your own son, in caring for her, in the most vulnerable moment of his earthly life, in her moment of most grief, he uses this word woman. So he's not being gruff. It, it, it's, a, it's a term of respect, but it's very different than mom. After, at this moment on, Jesus never refers to Mary as mom. Why? Because now he has a different relationship with her. Now, if Mary is to seek his help, it will not be on the condition of the relationship of a mother-son relationship. Because now he will be her savior. And when Jesus says, no, this is not my time, what he's telling her is that you and I now have a different relationship. Now, 
I must first consult my heavenly Father before I listen to you. So let me just press pause in the John 2 message. And moms, listen to me. Please note, it is a blessed day when your kids quit primarily listening to you and start primarily listening to their Heavenly Father. Don't be hurt by it. Don't be threatened by it. Pray for it and train them up for it. On an earthly level, any of you with daughters, when they marry, they are to primarily listen to and obey their husband, not mom and dad. And for any of us with sons, when they marry, they are primarily to love and to be loyal to their wife, not mom and dad. And as parents, we cannot allow ourselves to be hurt by it, threatened by it, ought to pray for it, encourage it, train them to let go of us. One of the top five reasons of divorce, family relationships, primarily in parents who can't let go and kids who continue to hang on. So Jesus is saying, we have a different relationship now, dear woman. I do not listen to you as my primary source of direction. That is my heavenly father. That's why he says, woman, why do you concern me? Actually, Jesus' words, why do you involve me? What he's literally saying is, your concern and mine are not the same anymore. That's what he's literally saying. He's saying, I realize, Mary, that you have an agenda, but you have to understand that I have a different agenda. And our agendas are not the same anymore. And this is what happens sometimes when we come to God and we say, Jesus, I have a need. I trust you to do what's best. And Jesus says, do you really? Because your agenda and my agenda may not be the same. Right? And it's exactly what the Father tells us through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. And so when we come to Jesus and we say, I have a need and I trust you to do what is best, we still have an agenda in mind. And oftentimes God wants to tell us, look, I realize that's what you're saying, but you have to realize that your agenda and mine might be different. Are you okay with that? And if our agendas are different, can you leave it with me and walk away and not worry about it? Now, although Mary tell, uh, Jesus tells Mary, your concern isn't my concern. Mary follows it up with telling people, just do what he says, because she knows he's going to do something, right? Like mama knows that he's going to do something. And I love the fact that in this, in, in this account, Jesus looks and he sees what right next to him? What's he see? You know what it is. Six jars. Six stone jugs. Containing somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. They were of different sizes, and so one would hold 21, with 20, you know, 7, and 130, and they were just different. But up to maybe 180 gallons 
And here's what I love. When Jesus decides under the direction of his heavenly father to engage in this and solve and, and bless in the midst of a need, he doesn't tell the people, go out and get something. He, what, what Jesus does. See, God doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. God just expects us to employ all that we do have. He says, you've got six right here. I'm going to use the six you've got. You don't got to go out and get eight. You don't got to get any different. You go what you got right here. We'll use what you got. And the same thing with everyone else. God doesn't invite us and expect us to go out and get something we don't have. He says, I don't expect you to provide what you don't have. All I expect you to do is employ everything you do have. And the instruction he gives them, he says, fill these up. See, God invites them to be a part of what he's doing. Not because he needs them to get stuff done. Likewise, God invites us to be a part of what he's doing, this kingdom work in the ranchos, at Riverstone, in Cuba, Guatemala, Mexico, in Fresno, Madera, South Valley, Rapid City, Idaho, Texas, and all these places. Do you know, I don't know about Chow Chill. I don't know if God's there yet. But yeah, maybe, if he calls us there. No, I mean, like in the last year, in the last year, Excel, Excel Leadership Network have started over 100 churches. I mean, huge denominations don't do that in decades. And he's invited us. We give four, at least 40 cents on the dollar. We give away to church plants and missions work. Why? Because he invites us. He doesn't need us. If we chose to stop that, he would get it from somewhere else. He doesn't need us, but he invites us. Why? Because there is so much blessing in being a part of kingdom work. There's so much blessing that we get experience in being a part of it. And so he invites, what do you got? Let's just employ all that you have. And, and the Bible says that it, they, they, they filled the jugs to the brim, to the top. I love that because they, they, they obeyed without question. I mean, if, if, some of us, I know who we are. I know who I am. Jesus says, fill these with water. Be like, hey, they, they got water. They already got water in them. Why do we need to fill them with water? They need wine, not water. Right? There was no question in their obedience. Okay. Doesn't make sense to me, but all right, I'll do it. And they filled those jugs to the fullest possible. The fullest possible. Imagine the little miracle that they would have seen. If they only had a little faith to fill the jugs a little bit. However much they filled them would have been turned to wine. Imagine how little they could have received had they only filled them a little bit. Here's what I know. God oftentimes, oftentimes, responds to the measure of our faith. And I just wonder, I just wonder, how many times we've walked away from the table with blessings still to come. Because our response to God has been such little faith See, when we're told to believe in and believe to the brim. When we're told to give, give to the brim. When we're told to serve, serve to the brim. 
when we're told to love, love to the brim, even those who have hurt you, even those who've discredited you, even those who've... To the brim. There's a lot in this passage. John uses these words, wonders and signs. And sometimes he puts together these miraculous signs. And here's the distinction. Wonders are done to make people curious and interested. To gather crowds. But signs are given so that people would believe in the divinity of Christ. And these are signs that we might believe. These miracles Jesus did were not done just to create wonder and a, and, 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 and a, you know, a, a crowd following. They were done to cause people to believe. This first miracle in Cana in Galilee was to validate Jesus' what's called his messianic identity, that he was, he was the one. The point of these miracles, please understand this. The point of these miracles is that we'd believe in him. Not just that we would receive help from the miracle itself, but the point primarily is that we would believe in Him and in believing, receive life. See, most of us, and I understand, most of us want help. We want the miracle. We want the interaction. We want God to show up. We want God to intervene. We want God to step in and do what only God can do. We want that. And so we pray for miracles. We pray that he'll help. We pray that he'll reveal. We pray that we'll see. We pray that he'll experience. And I totally understand because when it's us or our loved ones who are in great need, we beg for God to do something, right? But I want. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. We will see people in the Gospels coming with that intensity. God, you have to. But I wonder how few of us pray for signs and wonders and miracles, not just for help, but that so people will believe, which is the point. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Mark, there's a little comment I think that was added by Mark. And I think it says this. Jesus went before them with signs and wonders to authenticate uh, the word that was preached. I think that's how it goes. And, and, and I just wonder if, if, if part of the Christ follower's Heart, deep heart desire is not for signs and wonders because it's interesting and creates a crowd, but for the expression of God to authenticate His Word so that people will believe. See, think of the people at the wedding. I was, I was trying to put myself... In, in, in their shoes, sandals. See, the people wanted Jesus at their wedding. They didn't know they would have a need. 
They just wanted his presence. They didn't think, okay, now, we got so many people that we've invited and all the RSVPs are coming back and people are going to show up and we only have this much mind. So I'll tell you what, let's get Jesus to show up because we know we're going to have a big need and maybe he can do something for us. That's not what they were thinking. All they knew were having a big party. We like Jesus and we just want him to show up. And so they invite just his presence. Watch what happened. They just want his presence and they got a miracle. Do, do, do you see the relationship? They just wanted his presence. They didn't know they'd need a miracle. But because they just wanted his presence, he was in and with them so that he could provide a miracle. Do you see that? And it is a little bit backwards because most of us want a miracle but never get closer to his presence. Most of us want a miracle so we can keep living like we're living so stuff doesn't get all wrapped around the axle and screwed up. They just wanted his presence because his presence was important. So that because they had his presence, when the need arose, they could receive a miracle. And this one miracle proves that he has the power to work every other miracle that's going to come. Because if Jesus can turn water to wine to change the inanimate molecules at the smallest chemical level, he can do anything and everything else that's going to be needed. And if Jesus can exert this type of power beyond the natural course, beyond the natural order of things, we can believe that there's no limit to his power and authority. The, the purpose of this, and the reason why I'm taking so to go through, I want us to be amazed again at who Jesus is. To stand in awe at this. That if he could do this, I love the fact, can I finish up in just a little bit here? Uh, there's a couple more things. This miracle of water to wine. Maybe 180 gallons. Pots filled to the brim. You know what this tells me about my God? God isn't frugal. That means he's not stingy. That he provides lavishly. That, that, that he didn't, how much wine do you need? Three bottles worth? I'm going to give you three bottles worth. Don't come back asking for more. I give you what you need. He's not like that. 180 gallons? Someone estimated that's a thousand bottles of wine. Now, some of y'all are good wine drinkers, but you're not that good. He provides lavishly. And the thing I love about his provision, he didn't just make wine. What they say about the wine? Yeah. You've saved the best till now. It just keeps getting better. I thought it was going to be good, but it the best till now. Not only does he just make wine, he, it's not like he's making 19 crimes or Stella Rosa. Like he's making the best ever. He, what I know about my God is this, and please be amazed by him. No small gifts 
fall from so great a hand. What that means is it's not ever good enough things come from a good, from, from, from so good a hand. It never has to be just good enough. It's the best ever. When we invite Jesus in, we say, I just want your presence. I invite you to be a part of my marriage. I invite you to be a part of my family. I invite you to be a part of my finances. I invite you to be a part of my future. I invite you to be a part of my plans. I invite you to be a part of my kids. Please, God, be a part of my kids. I invite you to be a part of my illness. I invite you to be a part. See, there are things God has given us. And then he stands as a gentleman and waits for us to invite him in. And the principle that we learn from this is that for the children of God, the best is always to come. The best is still coming. It might be bad now, but the best is on its way. It might be really good right now, but the best is still to come. See, this whole event, in part, is an illustration of how our relationship with God becomes more and more satisfying with the passage of time when we're walking in fellowship with Him. See, when people meet us, well, I'll just say when people meet me, I can come across initially as pretty friendly and considerate. I can when you first meet me. However, after people get to know me a while, they realize that there's a lot of me, if we're going to be friends, they have to put up with about me. Do you understand? Don't amen that too fast because you're going to offend me. You know, it's just, it's just like, like it's bad. As they get to know us, they realize there's some stuff they got to put up with about us. Our relationship with God is not like that. as the relationship and fellowship deepens, at every stage, we stand aside and say, you saved the best till now. And then at the next stage, amazed again, I can't, I thought it was good. You saved the best till now. And then at the next stage, we thought, oh, I thought it was good. But, but now, you've saved the best till now. This is what it is to when the Bible says abide, to live in, to reside in. You say the best till now. These seven miracles, these signs in John, all point to the power and authority of Jesus that we may believe. And then that belief have life. And have that life get better. That life with him get better and better and sweeter and sweeter. You say the best till now. I've, I've never met anybody who's following Jesus who has ever, who's ever said, you know, I wish I would have waited longer to follow Jesus. I've never heard anybody say that. Who's walking with Jesus. I've, I've never heard anybody who on the, on the last days of their life who said anything like, you know, I, I wish I would have waited longer to believe in him. I've never heard anybody say that. I've been around a lot of people 
who are taking their final breaths. And I've never heard anybody say, you know, I, I just wish I wouldn't have trusted Jesus so soon. I've never heard anybody say that. I, I've never heard anybody say, especially at, at the end looking back, you know, I, 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 wish, I wish I would just would not have trusted Jesus as much as I did. I've never heard anybody say that. Do you know why? Because the best is yet to come. Water to wines. The best is yet to come. My agenda might not be his agenda, but he'll do what's best. Why? Because the best is yet to come. Because that's who he is. And all of this in John is meant to show us who he is, that we might believe in him and in that belief have life. And so I invite you to the best that is to come. I want you to pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love us. And I thank you that nothing we do can snatch us out of your hand. And I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross, to be raised from the grave so we could have eternal life. And I thank you that you've given us the promise that the best is yet to come. Father, there are some of us in this place. There are some of us who, are, who can hear my voice that, that in their hearts and their spirits right now definitely have a need and are coming to you because they trust you'll do what's right and best. And so for those of you who are in that moment, if you would in, the, in, in this time, in the quietness of your own heart, say something along the lines. Jesus, I have a need. And I invite you in. Whatever that need is. For their marriage or their family, your future, your kids, your finances, your illness, your job. Whatever that is. Jesus, here's my need. And I invite you in. And then tell them, I trust you to do what's right. And I trust you to do what's best even if your agenda and my agenda are different. I invite you in. And then tell them, and I believe that the best is yet to come. And I'm counting on the fact that the best is yet to come. Just tell them that. And Father, I pray on our behalf that as we in times of our need come to you and invite you into that need, we trust and we believe that you will do what is right and best. Even if your agenda and ours are different, we're going to stay in this moment of trust and trust you. We will employ all that we have for your kingdom because we believe that the best is yet to come. And so, Father, hear me now. By the name of Jesus and the power and authority of that name, Father, in humility, I call on you to do what you said you would do which is the best and right, and that the best is yet to come. And so for all of us who have brought ourselves into this moment, 
We believe what your word says, that your eyes range to and throw about the earth to find those whose hearts are strongly yours, that you might strongly support us. God, our hearts are yours. Now you do what you said you do and strongly step in. Even if your agenda is different, we trust you. And we believe that the best is yet to come. And we thank you for it, Father. We wait expectantly for signs and wonders to authenticate your word. That you may be glorified. In your name I pray, amen. Hey, we're going to do something that, that I don't have scripted. I just I had the idea. The Bible does say that when we profess Christ before people, he professes us before the angels in heaven and they're released to serve those of us who are here in salvation. So part of that confession is this. Some of you have walked through that prayer that we just prayed, inviting Jesus in, trusting him with his agenda um, and expecting the best. Part of that confession of, of faith might be sharing that with someone and having someone pray with you and share it with you. And so here's what I'm going to do. I haven't, I haven't, I didn't prompt this ahead of time. I'm just going to add anything because I see you guys sitting right here. And, and John Botwright, I see you sitting right there. And, and Sean will be at the, at the start here booth. If any of you want to, to share that and have someone pray with you and, and pray over you, your release of your stuff, your invitation of Jesus to come in and, and the expectation that the best is going to come. I know these, these guys would be willing to do that with you. So after we're done singing, if that's you, just stay uh, and, and make yourselves available to them. I know that they would love the opportunity uh, to pray with you through those things. We good? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so good. I pray you make your word come alive that would live in us, that we would live in you. And Father, I do ask that you go before us, not for our sake, but for your sake. Signs and wonders to authenticate this word that is alive and true and active. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Let's sing.